0: I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair and let's begin. Elisa Lynn Valdez is an award-winning print and broadcast journalist and a former staff writer for both the Los Angeles Times and the Boston Globe, with more than one million books in print in 11 languages. She was included on Time's list of the 25 most influential Hispanics and was a Latina Woman of the Year, as well as an Enlightenment Weekly breakout literary star. She's the author of many novels, including Playing with Boys and The Husband Habit. Elisa divides her time between New Mexico and L.A., Welcome, Elisa. Thanks for having me. I was reading the bio on your website, which is really fun. You studied music at Berkeley in Boston, journalism at Columbia, taught aerobics, and had a near-death experience. <laughs> it's all really interesting. I'm wondering about that last one. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, it definitely changed my outlook on life and death. When I had the experience, I was clinically dead for a while and died a few times and was revived and then was in a coma and came out of it. I was not raised with religion or really I, my parents are both at that time were both super materialist kind of not materialistic, but materialist um, academic. So I was raised atheist and didn't ever really give it a second thought but when my body died my consciousness continued to exist outside of the body and I had all kinds of things happen that were really really interesting and there were intelligences that I was able to communicate and it sounds a little nuts but and I would no. the, I would be the first person who would think that was nuts if, if it hadn't actually happened to me the, ba- the main message that I got out of that was, it doesn't really matter what anyone believes or doesn't believe because none of it's right and none of it's wrong. That what I call it source, because the word God is so polluted for so many people, that what matters to source isn't your belief system, it's how you behave towards other living beings and yourself. That love is really why we're here, that we're here to learn how to be kind to each other, to learn to control our thoughts, to be really compassionate and the, the things we think matter. The moments that you think of as the best moments of your life, you got a prize, you're a bestseller, whatever. None of that matters. What Source thinks is important and we are part of Source. It's not like separate from us. Really are those moments when you were able to step outside of yourself and love someone else as though they were you, even though you don't agree with them or you don't like what they have to say or all of the stuff that we're not really doing very well right now as a society, I think. And a lot of that is being done in the name of religion, which is unfortunate. So that was the biggest takeaway. My, my big question on the other side was who's right and who's wrong? Cause everyone's fighting about that over there. And, it, and the answer was nobody's right and nobody's wrong. And when I said, what does that mean? And these consciousnesses I was communicating with instantly showed me a a scene unfolding. And my, uh, my sense was they were able to create these three dimensional parables for me to just witness. And that's how they answered me. So it was really fascinating Uh that the importance of story was Also there, and maybe that's because of me. I feel like everyone's afterlife or immediate afterlife experience is going to be tailored to what you need to see and experience for your own self. The scene was a little girl playing, throwing a tea party for teddy bears while her parents watched. And there was nothing in the pot and nothing in the cup. And she feeds the teddy bear, and she's beaming, and she's like, "Mommy, Daddy, look, Teddy loves the tea." And they stopped the scene and asked me a question, and it was all kind of like just immediate understanding. I didn't hear anything. It was it's a different kind of knowingness but the question was, what does a good parent say? I'm a mom. So I realized a good parent does not say, you know what? That's not true. There's no tea in that cup. That's so stupid. That bear is not drinking anything. (laughs) The parent realizes that imaginary play is more than just something that's not true. It's practicing. So what was the little girl practicing? She's practicing kindness, generosity, compassion, sharing joy, love. She's practicing being a loving being. And so that was how they told me that's what we care about. That that tea party and those teddy bears, that's religion, but we don't need you to be right. That was pretty cool. General message of all of the faith traditions in the world, I think are pretty similar as far as just be kind to people. And, and I would say every living thing. That's yeah, what I understood yeah. too, is every living thing has a soul. You see my little Buddha on the floor. I think the Buddha was very close to understanding a lot of what what I found to be the case. So yeah, it's made me a lot happier with whatever's going on. I used to be very anxious. Things mm-hmm. had to go the right way. And, and the happiness was always something in the future. I was always a future focused. And now I, I feel just happy to be here and Present focus. And I realized like enlightenment is not a state of bliss. That's the wrong attitude. And I think at least in the West, we kind of are like, oh, we shouldn't feel pain and sorrow if you're a good person. If you do these six things, then everything should be perfect. And then you'll go to a place forever that's fun and wonderful. It's not that. You have to be able to lose and hurt to be fully human. The example I use is as a parent, it hurts when your kid grows up and moves away. But that's for the The good of the kid. It's not about you being comfortable and happy all the time. Sometimes it's about accepting and tolerating painful things that you can't change without elevating that to suffering. And that's the part we really got right, which is pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Suffering comes about when you're faced with a pain you can't change or a loss you can't change. Someone dies, someone leaves you, and you resist it rather than accept it. That takes pain to a whole new level of misery, which is suffering because we're telling ourselves I'm not good enough. They left me because I'm not good enough. Now I'll be never be loved. I'll never find, you know, all of that is what we do to ourselves to suffer. Yes. So I came away from that, just feeling very at peace with not knowing what's going to happen or with things happening that people think are bad things over and over again in life. I've noticed that the things we think are bad, if you wait long enough, there's a punchline like it it ends up being the good thing. It happens, you just have to wait.
0: See the other side of it, that's for sure. Yeah. Has the experience informed your writing?
1: Definitely. I started being a novelist about 20 years ago, and I was writing what I thought I was supposed to write, which was I was living the life I thought I was supposed to live. Not that my writing was insincere, it wasn't. I was, you know, in my 30s and had been living as a young professional in Boston, and so I wrote Chica Lit of Chick. I didn't know women's commercial fiction, um, and it was. It was snarky. It was kind of mean. A lot of that writing was was kind of funny, but mean. I haven't had a new book out for almost 10 years. I was doing some other things, raising my son and also learning how to write screenplays. But I also just felt this discomfort about going back to that genre I've been in because I'm like, that's really not sincere anymore. And when you have success in a genre, they kind of want you to keep doing the same thing over and over again. So that was like a, a barrier you know, for me until this thing happened. And then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to be fearless and sincere and write what my soul is telling me to write something that I feel is meaningful and sincere to me now. And if someone wants to buy it, great. And if someone doesn't also great that I'm nothing lost. And that's where Jodi Luna came from. She's very different. It's a different genre. It's a suspense thriller genre. Um, she's a middle-aged single mom living in rural New Mexico, night and day from a bunch of girlfriends in Boston, having cocktails and fancy shoes, you know, whatever (laughs) that's, this is not, that's not the world I grew up in. It's the world I kind of went out of New Mexico into in college and became this, oh, I'm going to be, but deep down inside my soul, I'm a 10th generation, New Mexican on my mom's side. My, my Uh is 12th. We're rural people. We have ranchers and, and um, you know, outdoorsmen and trading post owners, that's kind of my life here. When you grow up in a place like New Mexico, it's a huge state. I think we're the fifth largest state, but the population is very small. It's only like a little more than 2 million people in the whole state. And we have a real brain drain problem here. So people leave who are ambitious. And there's just this sense that nothing important happens here. Or if you're from here, you can't ever be really good at anything. This undeserved inferiority complex, I think kind of like Canada, I realized I've been trying to find important things to say from communities other than my own for a long time, because I didn't value where I was born and placed. And becoming a more spiritual person, I realized it was all intentional. There are so many important things here that I'd love to give voice to. That's kind of where I'm at now.
0: Your story is great. Wait for you to put out a memoir. Oh, God. We'll
1: see. I've wanted to like- write about the near-death thing. It's been eight years since that happened. And when I first came back from that experience, I really wanted to write about it. And I was discouraged by the people around me in the industry, my agent at the time, not my agent now, my agent now is fantastic. But it was kind of like, no, tell people that they'll think you're crazy. And I swallowed that. But then I realized that's so invalidating and maybe it is crazy, but I don't think so. I've, I've, there's so many who've had experiences similar to mine now. I would like to write about it at some point. I think if it can help bring them comfort at all, there's something else beyond this. Or I might just put it into these novels, which I do a lot of. There's a lot of me in Jodi, for sure. Jody's in Hollow Beast, correct? Jodi Luna is the lead character in Hollow Beasts, Book one in a series. So I'm about to turn in book two called Blood Mountain. And that comes out this time next year. Well, tell us about Hollow Beast. Jody Luna is a game warden. The idea to write about a game warden came to me because I have a friend who's a game warden. And we were talking one day and he said, you know, being a game warden is the number one most dangerous law enforcement job in the country. And I looked it up and it, it was. Game wardens tend not to have a partner. And what their job is, a lot of people confuse them with forest rangers. And mm-hmm. the game warden looks after the wildlife. So they're out there to enforce conservation laws. So they're the ones who make sure you have a license to fish, they make sure that poachers aren't you know, poaching, um, or if they are, that they're being arrested and punished for it. They are the only cops in the United States whose sole job is to protect wildlife. The reason that it's so dangerous to be a game warden is, and they're eight times more likely to be attacked in the line of duty than a city cop. And that's because they don't have partners, uh, they are by themselves in these vast territories my character's territory is 5,000 square miles, which is not unusual. And they're out there without cell service. A lot of the time, sometimes their radios don't work. They might have a satellite phone that they could get through to somebody with. And they're up against poachers. And poachers, think about the psychology of a poacher. This is someone who has no regard for the life or the law. Mm. And they're armed. And they they their their entire attitude of being out there is I can do whatever I want as long as nobody knows. So imagine being up, being a woman game warden up against, you know, male poachers in the middle of the wilderness. This is what was intriguing to me. Um it just felt like you know, on a very literal level, very interesting to explore that world, but also on a symbolic level of what all of that meant to humanity at this ecological disaster crossroads. So the first book, it opens with her ticketing a poacher. It's her first day on the job. She <laughs> is middle-aged, but she's going into this as a new game warden, and I'll explain why in a minute. But she tickets a guy who's a skinhead he's been poaching, and he does not like her because of her everything. She's being trained by her uncle who's about to retire and wants her to fill his job. He's an old man. New Mexico has only been a state since 1912. So in a lot of these towns, people still speak Spanish as their main language. There's a saying here, which is we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And a lot of the national dialogue around Latino identity, Latinx identity and immigration and all that does not apply here. My Hispano family, as we call them here, have been here since the late 1500s. We've been here since before the United States was, you know, even an idea. So she and her uncle are speaking Spanish to each other and the skinhead's like, hey, it's America, speak English. And she's like, you know, by the way, and she tells him the law, which is true, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, when the U.S. became a territory, was very specific and deliberate in saying people in this region have a constitutional right to Spanish. So in New Mexico, bilingualism is the law. Schools, everything, bilingual. And so she tells him that because he's from Arizona. He becomes obsessed with her and hates her and starts stalking her. And that's where we start this whole cat-mouse story where she eventually realizes he's part of a bigger white supremacist terrorist cell that's kind of hiding out in the San Ysidro National Forest, plotting some really bad stuff. The reason I chose them, I mean, in part, personally, I find them repulsive and terrifying. They love to find people like me to harass. The Homeland Security and the FBI say that the number one terrorist threat in the United States right now is white supremacist terrorist groups. And I wasn't seeing that reflect reflected in pop culture where we still kind of have this very I think racist view of what a terrorist looks like or is and so I wanted to have my Latina game warden going up against you know all the usual dangers that a game warden goes up against but also to elevate it even more that the poachers she's going after are also part of this dangerous terrorist group targeting people like her I'm not a police officer. I've never been a game warden. How can I create a character who is one of these things? She was a nature poet like Mary Oliver before she returns home to be a game warden. And she decides nature needs more than just poems. Nature needs warriors. Her husband dies in an accident. And she has to rethink everything. So she leaves and comes back to her home to defend the wild places.
0: title hollow beast where does that come from
1: so they're in a literal hollow in the forest they're poaching and they're also hunting people kidnapping women of color and hunting them It's kind of just a triple entendre almost i saw the terrorists themselves as beasts without souls i saw the poaching that they were doing and hollowing out actual animals and then that they were also these monsters living in a hollow so it all just
0: kind of coalesced at that title your main character comes to New Mexico. You're from there. So how does the setting affect your writing? And my character's from here
1: too. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to an acquaintance of mine who owns an AI company. He was excitedly telling me that he's developing AI to be able to take a story and change everything about it to suit the reader. He was like, so if someone wants their setting to change as they go city to city you can do that. And it just felt like a gut punch to me as a writer. And I was like, that's a horrible idea. We <laughs> pick setting, not like as a an incidental background that could be anywhere. We're very deliberate about the places that we set things. Just made me sick thinking someone could be like, hey, let's set Hall of Beast in uh Santa Monica. Because <laughs> <laughs> I live it's not gonna work. Yeah. So the setting for me, boy, this place, New Mexico has so many lessons, I think, to teach the rest of the U.S. And I'm hoping that these books can be part of that. One of them is we don't have a single ethnic majority here. And everybody kind of really much more so than anywhere else I've ever lived, lives very harmoniously and respectfully. I felt like growing up as a person with a Spanish surname in New Mexico was a luxury because so many people have Spanish surnames here. No one ever asks you what you are. It wasn't until I left at 17 or 18 that people were like, oh, Valdez, what are you? Like, that is a weird question. <laughs> I am a person. They're like, no, 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 no. What, what, where are you from? What's your nationality? And be like, I'm American. I'm like, no, no, no. What are you really? And that's an experience I had all over the country, which was this kind of assumption of, foreignness, otherness, not belonging. You must be something else because you're not this thing. That never happened in New Mexico. It's almost like growing up in Latin America, but in the Mm -hmm. U.S. borders. So I got to be a who instead of a what, which is a luxury that the dominant class has. At my high school, for instance, all the different clubs and cliques, all the kids were Latino kids. Your, Your ethnicity is not your identity. It's just sort of an incidental thing about you, but you get to be in the rodeo club, or you get to be a band kid, or you get to be in the science club, or you're a jock, you know, whatever it is, you could be those things. And so I moved back here 22 years ago when I was expecting my son, we were living in LA, and I did not want my son, whose dad is Mexican American, to grow up in a place where people asked him what he was. That's something I think New Mexico has to teach, which is nobody here is a what. And then I also think New Mexico, we were home to the first real American revolution, which is the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. When the Spaniards came, they were ruthless. And these are my ancestors. I I mean, I know their names and I know that a couple of the people in my family tree came here and their job was to commit genocide against several Pueblos. And they did. And it's not something I'm proud of in the least. Pueblos are a term that the Spanish gave to Native American communities who were in the Tanawan language family or carries kerosean. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong but like Taos, Isleta, up up and down the Rio Grande, they were these Mm -hmm. established agricultural communities that had been there for tens of thousands of years, probably. Very sophisticated methods of moving water, of growing food, of sophisticated religions. And they did not all speak the same language. They did not all live near each other, but they were able through a guy named Pope from the Taos Pueblo to organize a revolt against the Spaniards. And rise up against them and throw them out of New Mexico for 14 years. They sent them all to El Paso. The Spaniards came back and were slightly less ruthless, which is why we have the Pueblo architecture style here that was never wiped out. They kind of made some concessions to Native people here, not as many as they should have. There's a vibrancy to the Pueblo and Native reality here that you don't find in places like Colorado or Arizona or Texas, where those communities or similar communities definitely existed, but they didn't have the uprising that allowed for the survival of certain aspects of the culture that have woven into everyday life here. Mm. So this place feels very ancient, sort of sacred to me in that way.
0: I spent a lot of time in Taos and in different parts of New Mexico, mostly around Taos and Santa Fe. But like you said, it feels like it's thousands of years old because a lot of it is, but also there's something almost like magical about it. I don't know what the word is, but, you know, when you think about Georgia O'Keeffe and D.H. Lawrence and the other people that came to New Mexico because it had that magic, what drew them there, something that I don't think would exist if it looked like any other state. I'm not talking about like the land. I'm talking about the buildings, the smell of pinion. It's its own character, <laughs> You know what I mean? It is. It is. When I try to explain it to people, it's like I've only been
1: a couple of places in the U.S. where it felt like its own organic culture. Mm -hmm. We have our own cuisine. We have our own way of talking. We have kind of our own way of doing lots and lots of things. So, as far as you know, setting being interesting for story, it feels unique. So hopefully it'll be entertaining to people who've never experienced it before. And I specifically set this series in northern New Mexico, which is also very different from southern New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So Jody's first love was a boy from the Apache nation nearby. And kind of her backstory is the reason she left New Mexico was she got pregnant at 14 by this kid. And her parents who were very Catholic old school Spanish conservative and they sent her to like a Brutal school for troubled girls. Good. She wanted to keep the baby, and the parents and the nuns wouldn't let her. And she was so destroyed by that that she left home early to go to college. She has this daughter who she eventually meets in the book series, who is half Apache and half Jody, whatever Jody is. And then her other daughter is this teen, she's a single mom now. Her teen daughter, her dad was this kind of waspy, wealthy guy from the East Coast who Jody met at Harvard. So she's got, you know, these two daughters with these very different dads. Yeah.
0: What's a good writing day look like for you?
1: I love writing. I mean, I really like enjoy the act of it. I know not everyone does. I can't think of anything other than hiking and being outside that I like doing more. I write in the mornings. I'm a kind of a morning person. So I'm usually up by seven. I know some morning people are up earlier than that, but I'm up. By seven and then by eight, I'm writing and I will write until two every day. Do you outline? I do. I also rewrite a lot. So (laughs) sometimes the outline changes as I'm going along and I'll write till two, maybe three. And then I hike. And while I hike, because I'm a musician, I'm a trained musician more than I was trained in writing. I am an auditory learner. So I'll read my work, like in that last hour, I'll read into Mm -hmm. a recorder what I've written that day. And then as I hike, I listen to it. And that's Um, where I kind of hear where the problems are or where things are needing to be fixed. And so I'll kind of keep verbal notes as I'm hiking. For some reason, the act of actually just hiking or walking, moving, being in nature, Gets my brain firing more than sitting in a room. I do a lot of my writing when I'm not actually typing, but it's like I'm just
0: <laughs> out, zoning out on the taking yeah. trails. Good exercise, too. Yeah. Have you read anything interesting lately? Yes, I have. I try not
1: to read too much while I'm writing because I feel like the style of the person I'm reading will sometimes seep into my own, and I don't like that. So for the past couple of months, I've been working on book two. I have been reading some interesting nonfiction, a book called When Things Fall Apart by Pima Children, which is a really oh, fantastic book. I love book. her. She's so good. She's she so is. good. Yeah. I do read everything Dean Coons writes. The House at the End of the World, I just read. So I did break my role
0: for him. Do you have any advice for new writers?
1: One thing, a lot of people get very wedded to things that actually happened and they want to write a novel about their own lives and they're really stuck on the sequence of events. That's not how it happened. It happened like this, like this, like this. I think one thing that new writers really need to understand is that form and structure are your friends. And they exist for a reason that if you want your story to be read, like, and by other people, it has to be more than therapy for you. There is a place for therapeutic writing, journal writing, memoir, that kind of thing. But as far as novels, I I think a lot of people are really writing for themselves, which isn't bad. I got my start in journalism for 10 years and you're never really writing for yourself as a journalist. You're gathering information and facts and you're Thinking a lot about your reader. What is their reading level? What is their need? I think writing at its best should be service to readers. One thing I think the MFA programs kind of have done that's not good is create kind of a disdain for popular fiction, for work that speaks to readers rather than critics or other writers. Just from a spiritual place, I think it's got to be about more than yourself. And that's for everything in life. So maybe get that therapeutic writing out of the way and legitimately see a therapist and talk through these issues. But do not make your book the place where you're doing that, unless it's memoir. People are coming to a story to see themselves. They're not coming to a story to see you. So the worst writing for me, I feel like the writer is in the in between me and the story saying, hey, look how well I'm writing. Look at the cool words I'm using. Look how awesome I am. I don't want to think about the writer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, get out of the way of your own story and let source or the universe use you as a conduit to tell stories that need to be told for the collective.
0: Thank you, Elisa. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for all you do for writers. Learn more at elisa-valdez-rodriguez.com. Oh. If you're enjoying the writing table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.